Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital, where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure, energy, and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. Our guest this episode is Phil Turnbull, CEO of Apple and Pear Australia Limited. Uh, Welcome, everyone. It's Adrian Redlick, the Chief Investment Officer of Merrick's Capital, and welcome to Line of Credit. Um, This is our seventh edition, and today I have Phil Turnbull, who's the CEO of Apple and Pear Australia Limited, and also a very valued member of our advisory board here at Merrick's, specialising in the agri-space. Phil has a long history, family history and personal history from growing all the way to selling fruit around the world in many different forms. And so, He's a really important, valued member of our um, advisory board who provides us lots of insight into what's going on in the world and lots of the the shifts. Welcome, Phil. Thanks, Adrian. Great to be here. So maybe I'll let you introduce yourself. Tell our listeners just you know, the the one minute version of your your life and your history. What? Uh, look, I, I came to uh, to the business of apples and pears actually through birth. I was born to a. Uh, uh, a fifth generation uh, orchardist, but um, I always had a passion for marketing. So the first part of my career was was in marketing in in FMCG, and then through circumstances, found my way back into uh, the orchard business, and uh, and then ended up uh, starting in this role um, in 2016 as CEO. And tell us, Phil, what does Apple and Pear Australia Limited do? Yeah, it's an interesting, unusual business. Uh, so in the first instance, it's the peak industry body representing Australian apple and pear growers, and that's quite common in, in the ag space here in Australia. Uh, but we also have a commercial business is in that we own the um, the Pink Lady trademarks globally. Um, and so that commercial business that we operate funds all the activities we do in the Australian industry for our growers. And, you know, I've, I've learned from you over the years, uh, Pink Lady business is a big, it's a big business. Yeah, I'll give you some background on that, Adrian. It's it's essentially a uh, a global business where it's grown in fourteen countries uh, around the world uh, and sent to markets all around the world. Also, the, the largest markets that we have are in uh, the UK and um, and Europe. And but we're most of our investment time at the moment is is in developing the emerging markets of particularly Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and and India. Uh, and we're just getting going in China as well. So, so for listen, you know, Phil adds a, a really interesting perspective to when we lend to agriculture. You know, most people tend to focus on the farm gate and even the production here in Australia. But it's what's always incredible to us as an organisation who you know, lends to agriculture, but has also run billions of dollars of commodity trading, is people really understand very little about the export market and the markets they're going into. So. It's really an area, Phil, I want to focus on and, and pick your, your brain on today because I, I think the understanding particularly of, of more opaque markets such as fruit and veg, you know, how it leaves our leaves our country and find its way into other markets and not all those markets are open to Australia. So that's something we can also, also discuss and sort of your outlook. So I think today I want to cover a couple of things, general themes, you know, what are you seeing from your constituents, you know, the growers? What are you seeing the trends with the current product that you're selling around the world? You know, how things behaving, people are always very cyclically focused. You know, are you starting to see consumer pressure? And it might be a funny thing for people to think about, but you know, 
Pink Lady's a luxury item out there, as um, you keep keep telling me. Yeah. But um, to, to understand that element, then, you know, I think sort of want to understand, particularly with the, the product you have, particularly um, Pink Lady and others, you know, what it takes to access new markets, because it's a big differentiator. We've seen the shift of citrus accessing China market for Australia change the game. Apples and pears out of Australia don't access that market as an example. So we'll, we'll touch thirdly on that. And last one here about the other, the new and exciting things being developed out there and how you hope to participate in those markets. But maybe just tell us a little bit about, you know, what are you hearing from your constituents? What are the the gripes, dare I say, of the, yes. the farmers? But also what's where's their optimism? Uh, so good question. And and as I might have mentioned to you, we've sort of got two lots of constituents. our our 500-odd Australian fruit-growing members and then our 280-odd licensees globally. And there are some differences and consistencies, but... Um, certainly in Australia, and I think you, you, you're probably aware of this with your investments in other parts of horticulture, the significant issue at the moment we have is is around labour. Specifically, whilst the sort of the kind of unskilled labour part of particularly harvest um, has has become a little easier than it was in 2021 and, and 2020, the skilled part of recruiting is is still difficult in our space. And again, we're like no other business. We're looking for that sort of middle tier foreman, you know, sort of manager operator level, uh, and they're hard to come by. Um, and so that's a continual kind of struggle for our industry. But the other challenge we have, and this is, this is probably one that's consistent kind of globally and, and locally, is, you know, the challenges we have with issues to do with weather and like any other ag business we're exposed to weather in, in specifically in the apple and pear space has been a lot of investment in recent years around crop protection whether that's netting and those types of things that you know some to some extent limit the damage you get from major weather events you know right now we're, we're as a business exposed to the situation in new zealand with cyclone gabrielle where in hawks bay they've lost for this year anyway almost 50 percent of their production so again it's it's one of those businesses where, yes, we have 14 different growing regions around the world, which does tend to diversify our production base. Uh, the reality is that one or two of them are always uh, are struggling. And then you've got the challenge in the markets. And again, there's two lots of stakeholders here. If I look at the Australian industry, um, we only export 1% of our production at the moment. So we're totally exposed to the duopoly here in this country with, you know, essentially Coles and Woolworths. And so when we have a big supply year, pricing is really challenging. And what we're seeing this year is, and you will have seen it in the news, that, that there's been some serious weather events here, particularly in the Golden Valley, which is where is a large production base for us. Some significant floods um, late last year and then follow-up hail events. And then, you know, just a lot of kind of cooler weather, which has really meant that both apples and pears from a volume perspective, will be down um, in 2023. Inevitably, prices will come up, but not because our growers have been able to sustainably negotiate the cost increases they're experiencing. It's more just a supply and demand pace. And the same in New Zealand, no doubt, right? New no. Zealand's a bigger export market, obviously. As you know, we have, we're financing some farms in, in Hawke's Bay and Touchwood, they seem to get off quite lightly, but um, it's clearly a, a phenomena that's always been part of agriculture, but the weather, in particular, the, you know, the flooding and the storms in you know, Australia and New Zealand, which is our certain lending market, had a more dramatic impact in the last six months than certainly since the 70s, probably, when the sort of people hark back to those floods of the 70s. And so it's dramatic. So 
you see the impact prices are up? Is that yeah? Look, at d- domestically, we see a, a shortening in supply here, and inevitably, consumers will have to probably pay a bit extra. And look, the reality was because we've had two years of fairly strong supply in the Australian market from the local production. You know, prices, wholesale prices, have been depressed. So. The reality is in the Australian apple industry, one person's disaster is another person's gain just because of the pure supply and demand factors. The other thing I'd just note is that particularly because we're uh, uh, exposed to Europe and the UK, the the situation with the Ukraine war and the uh, the inflationary scenario there has put some pressure on the markets there. So again, our Southern Hemisphere uh, licensees like the Chileans, the New Zealanders uh, and the South Africans who supply a lot of their fruit into those markets have been exposed to to that kind of, you know, slightly softer market. So they've had a couple of very difficult years. One of the, the questions with a domestic market, effectively a closed loop here in Australia, which complete contrast to New Zealand, why don't why don't farmers here and why don't you as an umbrella body, why don't you export product um, out of Australia? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And and historically, both apple and pear industry have had a, a, a rich history in exporting. In the last 20 years, there has absolutely been a focus on uh, the supermarkets and the supermarkets that actually have provided good growth in the category over that period. The situation in being a supermarket vendor is that, you know, you do have a reliability of payment and cash flow. So inherently, it's less risky for middle to small operators to be a vendor to the supermarkets. But I think what the last two years have shown our industry is that when you're overexposed to one market, then it's highly risky for your business. So again, the narrative that we're running with industry, and it's certainly being picked up by the larger players, is you need to diversify your portfolio of markets if you want to de-risk your business. And, And we will start seeing that over the next five years. Of course, we've put a lot of effort into opening up um, markets and improving protocols into markets that we already have. Again, it's it's really creating the the will in our industry to to take what they see as a higher risk. From our point of view, it's actually lowering their market risk by opening up these new markets. I touched earlier on the citrus sector. Yeah, the citrus sector was one that through the nineties and the two thousands spent. Yeah, a decade ploughing in old Valencia orchards and getting rid of the juicing fruit. And then, you know, it's clearly faced a lot of pressure from the supermarkets here in terms of oversupply. And I can't put my finger on the date that when sort of the China market opened for, for oranges, um, but with the likes of Mildura Fruit Company and Bright Foods who own them, seemed to be a game changer, right? It moved that entire balance and shifted the price. And has been really the driver, I think, along with new product and, and technology productivity, but shifted you know, the value of orchards. You know, I think citrus farms went from 20,000 a hectare or 10,000 a hectare to 20, to now trading at three times that, that price because the diversity of markets, the yeah. product type, I mean, there was clearly a big shift in genetics as well as what was being offered, but a dramatic dramatic shift in that market and you know we've seen that happen and and you know we've seen it in kiwi fruit and others and i know that's a market that we can talk about as well what's what's holding you guys back in in apple and pear oh, look i think from a from an australian perspective we have a strong domestic market and in in in, in recent history our growers have been able to you know benefit from that i think what we've seen more recently is based on the new genetics available 
and the fact that banks have been prepared to lend money based on historical uh, numbers that the growers provide, they've been able to increase their production. So we've seen a significant increase in production, but the market here hasn't grown. So we will see over the next you know five to ten years an increase in exports out of this country. It's either that or a scenario you just described where people start removing old varieties and there'll be a little bit of that. But give us a sense of the growth, Phil. Like how what what's the volume growth over the last well the, it's years? the trend has been really we've seen, you know, up to sort of 25, 30% growth across since 2017 in, in terms of the class one tons. And what's happened in this country is there's been really a revolution in terms of productivity gains. So, you know, you've gone from orchards that maybe had th- 200, 300 trees a hectare to new orchards being planted, which have got, you know, 3,000 trees a hectare plus. And with the new genetics, you've got, you know, much better class one tonnes. So, you you know, less is going to juice and you've got varieties that are just more grower friendly. So you you might pull out a hectare of old production, which was producing 40 tonnes a hectare, and the one that you put in is now producing 100. So that's where you're getting the gains. They certainly look very different now, orchards, don't they? You sort of they're very vertical, or you know, yeah. Um, it's not. It doesn't look like a tree anymore. It looks like no, sort of grown on on trellis. I mean, I think certainly there is a view that at some point someone is in the near future is going to crack the sort of robotic harvesting, and there's no doubt that the symmetrical growing of fruit along very kind of two dimensional, three dimensional lines. Um, it's going to sort of set us up for that. But the new orchards are really, yeah, I mean, we're talking nearly some of them about 4,000 trees a hectare and you've got fruit literally along wires. That's really, in terms of even with unskilled labour, it's it's so uniform now in terms of managing a tree that it's much easier to explain and, and, and operate. So, yeah, I think we're, we're going to see a, an explosion, I think, globally once most of the growing regions around the world get a handle on how to do that, we'll see a, a large growth in apple production. And and just for listeners, explain that. And if I get this right, you're basically growing trees as though they're vines almost. You know, you're training them along trellises or wires. And so when you go and look at them, they almost look like vines in, in some way, obviously a lot taller. Yeah. Um, but that way sun gets to the whole tree. You can easily just pick it because you've got full access coming from each side as opposed to trying to reach into something which looks like the traditional vase. That's exactly right, Adrian. I mean, you're getting this very uniform position of fruit on the tree. It makes for harvesting a lot easier. But the other piece about this is that as we're seeing um, improvements in nursery tree quality, you can get those trees in production. You know, the good operators can get those into production in three or four years and be in full production in, you know, five or six. And because the the tree is really still quite a small tree um, because the trellis system is really holding it up. So the root system is really not as structural as it used to be. It's really about just feeding the, the, the fruit, nutrients and water. So from a cash flow point of view, all of a sudden it's 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 a much shorter time frame than it used to be. With a lot more production, let's talk about supply and demand and, and marketing, which I think despite... Having grown up on Turnbull orchards, there's not much passion there for farming yourself, getting it's no, more for marketing very, the product. Your uh, listeners can't see a, a very clean set of hands here that uh, mm. haven't touched a shovel but for a long time. I think for some of our listeners, they know I'm quite a, have my own little cherry orchard passionate farmer. I've tried to encourage <laughs> Phil to come and teach me the techniques. He's 
much more interested in doing other things, but um, visiting the orchard's not not at the top of the list. Um, the irony. For those of us in the city, we pine to have that rural experience and those that grow up in the country don't always want the same. But So, Phil, you know, marketing, you spend your life, I know, flying around the world, but with a lot more supply coming from Australia, Chile, South Africa, you know, um, particularly as I talk about the Southern Hemisphere suppliers, can the world absorb it? So the, the short answer to that is yes, because what we're seeing globally is there's been a... a a lot of new varieties developed. And while some of them are not too differentiated from each other, there are some really, firstly, grower-friendly varieties, but secondly, really a lot of varieties that have a lot of consumer appeal. And, you know, without confusing the listener here, there's there are there's IP attached to these varieties. So there's what I loosely term as plant patents, which is basically, you know, you own the, the trees and the fruits. And then there's the, the trademark. And so the combination of owning those two things creates enormous value for those who are part of that system. You know, you, it ceases to be become a commodity and it becomes more like a FMCG brand, which, you, you know, I, I told you my background, you can see why I'm, I'm passionate about this space because anything that it enables historically a commodity to become an FMCG brand that has value that can be passed along the supply chain improves a lot of things for everyone involved in the process. So all the all the new varieties that are coming that are replacing a lot of the older varieties that are freely available varieties, so whether it's Fuji, Red Delicious, Granny Smith's, all, all sort of global household names, these newer varieties providing a really good eating experience consistently. They've got, you know, consumer marketing attached to them, which really, you know, like any branded product, creates a relationship with the consumer to the point where there's not that uh, commodity conversation about supply and demand anymore because the retailer has to has to stock that brand if they want to get the sales. So we're seeing that transition globally. Thankfully, Pink Lady's at the forefront of that. And uh, I think I often explain with Pink Lady to people who don't know its background, it's, a, it's an overnight success. It's just taken 25 years to develop. And essentially, we had really no one leading the charge on this. We sort of made it up as we went along and thankfully a lot more good decisions were made than bad ones and and we've ended up with a a brand that globally turns over 1.4 billion US at at retail. But what we're seeing is there's a whole lot of other, not just apples actually, across horticulture, a lot of breeders and IP developers looking at our model and saying, well, how can we do the same thing? And where does Pink Lady stand in the categories in terms of market share in, I guess, Western world? Yeah, consumer apples. So it sits. It sits from a, a volume perspective. It's um, it's been sitting around seven to eight percent volume market share in Europe. It's a little higher, about 16 percent in the UK, and, and and they're the two markets we would describe as our as our most mature markets. And then for the rest of the world, we're talking you know sub two percent. And so there's enormous upside for us in these emerging markets. And and in a way, we do want to make sure that we do keep a, a bit of a, that's what I had to describe it, manage our supply. I mean, I think once you become 40, 50% market share, it's very hard to keep on commanding a premium. So we keep a close eye on our global production and, and demand. In terms of that premium, how big is that premium in broad sense? Uh, well, against commodity apples, like in the example I would probably use is the UK. It's you know anywhere between 70, 80% 
premium to a commodity Brayburn or Gala that you would otherwise sell. So you can imagine the value that that pushes back through the supply chain right back to growers. In terms of selling a, a luxury item, which I never thought I'd say that about pink ladies, no. you know, <laughs> although the, the pace with which one of my kids smashes them, it's um, I go home and tell him to, to lay off the, the pink ladies. What are you seeing in terms of activity? You know, is, obviously interest rates are up. Consumers, uh, everyone's in fear that the consumer's under pressure. We're, we're actually not necessarily seeing it through all the, the retail sort of outlets that we finance. But what mm. are you saying? You've just got off the plane from Europe recently. What What's your view? What are you seeing? My view is that Europe is certainly the confidence in the in the European consumer has taken a bit of a hit, particularly, you know, from about March of last year after the, the Ukraine war started unfolding. We've, we, we know that also the UK has taken a, a, a fairly big hit, particularly around inflation, but we're just starting to see that the the, our numbers recovering. And if we look at the, the, I often tell my management team, try and keep the COVID years as an exception rather than a rule and make sure you're looking at 2019 and 2018. We're sort of now pegging at levels slightly above those. So I, I'm pretty confident that the good brands that deliver a, a quality experience to consumers will will survive these sort of downturns. You're always going to have headwinds in commodities, whether they're production or market headwinds. But we're seeing exceptional resilience with the Pink Lady brand. I mean, if I think about the 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 imported apples into the into Europe over the last 10 years have dropped almost 50%, yet Pink Lady exports are, are up year on year. So there is resilience there for brands that really do deliver the consumer a good experience and have a, a consumer franchise. If we talk about export markets in particular, the, the UK has Brexit changed the opportunity set for your growers? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's no doubt that um, it's made the, the supply chains, logistics more difficult, um, particularly for, for fruit moving from continental Europe into the UK. But I think if you compound, compound Brexit, interest rates, the Ukraine war, for, for us globally, when we look at markets, the UK is the one that's probably suffered the most, and not to mention the political instability they've been through. So again, we're seeing resilience in our brands in those markets, but across the categories, we're seeing, you know, across the fresh category uh, in the UK yeah, declines year on year. So can we see Australian New Zealand product shipped to the UK? Is that, that a reality for those to be big markets? Uh, certainly for New Zealand. In, New Zealand have got uh, incredible growing conditions comparatively for apples and they are very, very focused on new, interesting consumer-facing varieties and brands and very focused on quality and you know, they couldn't be more different than Australia. They, they would export 90, 95% of their production. And they they know how to to look after and market to, you know, the global supermarkets, you know, Tesco's and Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencer's and the global brand, the global retailers. So they they've certainly do have a diversified market approach. So they're in, they've done exceptionally well in China, um, Southeast Asia, Europe and the UK. So again, I think that they're, you know, notwithstanding all the headwinds I spoke of, they they are well, very well placed globally to improve their business. Australia's got a bit of work to do. You know, we only, we're exposed to the Australian market. We're only exporting 1% of our production. So we've got to start forging those export relationships to start diversifying our markets. Yeah, interesting. Every, every new packing shed and, and grower that comes to see us, you know, for an expansion, 
that talks about the food bowl of, of Asia, particularly, you know, Australia and New Zealand, but around Australia. Yeah, you know, what does Australia have to do to get access to China and India in particular? I mean, they're the two big, the two big markets. And as I say, you name plenty of examples in hard commodities, but as I mentioned citrus before, it's a game changer. Um, yeah. potentially. What's your sort of view or outlook for access to those two markets in particular and what, what does it take? So we, we do have access to India at the moment and, you know, that's certainly a, a market that we visited recently uh, and have talked to about, you know, obviously about Pink Lady but more more generally what the Australian opportunities are. And I think there's no doubt the challenges that we have is we have a unique product but we're one of the highest cost producers in the world. Uh, it's labour intensive, and right across the the way, we've got the New Zealanders doing something pretty similar to us with better productivity and certainly a, a real focus on these international markets. So, um, in relation to China, um, we are sort of next in line in terms of uh, horticultural commodities to get access into China. Obviously, the relationship between Canberra and, uh, and Beijing it was fairly frosty for the last two or three years. We are seeing some movements in that relationship. Not too sure after the announcement of the submarines yesterday whether that might have refrosted, but um, we are we were seeing some progress there, and I think you know we'd like to think that in the next five years that will open. My view would be that I think a lot of commodities, you know, and citrus and grapes and others have learnt the lessons of over-indexing in one really buoyant market. Like China, and I don't think that our our industry would follow suit in the in the in the, with the enthusiasm and, and focus that they once did, and and I'm sure they won't either. I think we're going to have to have again a very much a balanced approach to where we move our product to make sure that we're not overexposed to any one market. In terms of other products, I know we've talked briefly in the past with the marketing engine that APAL has. What are some of the other exciting products? And maybe you can just touch on some of the genetic shifts and changes um, across the spectrum. Yeah, so uh, our UK business uh, is very much the leading produce marketing uh, company in the UK, a company called Correggio. Um, and it was originally set up to do all the brand and marketing and licensing work for Pink Lady in the UK. Um, but subsequently was approached by a number of large produce companies that had their own plant IP and, and wanted to develop a brand in the UK. So we started developing a relationship. First one that really kind of opened our eyes to this was with Cicada, um, which is a large Japanese seed company producing some wonderful products. And so we do all their um, their marketing work in Europe and the UK. You know, they, the, the product that the Australian listeners will know is, is broccolini and, uh, and that is known in Europe and UK as, well, in the UK it's known as tender stem. In Europe it's known as Beamy. It's the same genetics. But, again, it's it's pretty much taking the, the Pink Lady model and applying that to, to those products, which is the growers invest in a marketing budget that then is invested in where they sell the fruit and then we drive a consumer relationship and therefore able to price accordingly and return good money back to to the people in the in the supply chain. Um, so we're we're seeing that Cicada have, have got a, a wonderfully innovative R and D team. So we're seeing products sort of emanating from that. Obviously, you know, there's other brands that have followed in Pink Lady's footsteps, like Zespri. Uh, they've done a wonderful job in in having a unique product, supporting a good group of growers that that consistently supply a high level of quality 
and then obviously good branding activities. And so, again, in the UK, we've started representing Zespri there. You probably need to explain to people what Zespri is. Yeah, so Zespri is a, a brand of kiwi fruit. Uh, they've got, and they might have more, but the ones that I know, they've got a, a green kiwi fruit and a kiwi gold, and they're really, really, really good eating product. And so to your question, Adrian, what we're seeing is globally in produce, the amount of R&D going into developing new products and, and expanding breeding programs, there are there's new genetics coming in um, and I think what they're realising that whilst you have a plant patent or, you know, PBR, uh, plant breeders' rights, with PBR or a plant patent, it runs out after 25 years. So you've really got the opportunity in that 25 years to create a brand because the brand will survive PBR once it once it's freely available. So we're and that's where that's where we've re, we've landed with Pink Lady in Europe. The PBR has expired. What we're left with is a trademark, and the trademark is the the strength behind that product and and growers wanting to plant more of that and and expanding the business. So we're we're going to take what we've learned from Pink Lady and and assist our clients in developing their own brands globally. Well, maybe just changing tack a little, get your view on climate change and just the impact and how it impacts growers and consumers. What are, what are you seeing as the, the key trends? And, you know, particularly from an investment perspective, you know, there's sort of do's and don'ts from, from your perspective. Yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's a vexed question, Adrian, because um, amongst my constituents, we've still got some, um, some sceptics. So our, our position is very much if you're, if you're growing, I mean, so traditionally apples are grown in kind of cool climates. So, you know, if you think about Australia, southern Victoria, we've got we're growing regions in Tasmania and the Adelaide Hills in Batlow in the Snowy Mountains. So our view is that if you're growing in currently really dry conditions, you've got to think long and hard about where you, you put your investment. And I think that's, that's playing out globally. We're seeing that, you know, we've got a, a large production region for Pink Lady in in southern France, they've had some extraordinary heat waves in the last few years, and so the smart, larger growers are looking at more cooler climates in the southern southern hemisphere, further south, in the northern hemisphere, further north. And then the other piece around that is certainly going to be water security. And again, you know, you've got to think long and hard about that because what you've relied upon forever is not necessarily going to be the future. So the big question, bring it all together, like most businesses, is. A lot of uncertainty around climate, water, mm. water entitlements. There's different geopolitical things afoot which have impacted your market. A lot of productivity shifts and moves. But general, you know, the general consensus you know, from the investment world is agricultural land and agricultural products in short supply. Yet there's so many difficult times in, in agriculture. What's your, your overarching view? You know, is, it, is it a scarce resource? Or is it like every other business? You, you know, I know you've moved more to being it's all about brand as opposed to a scarce commodity. It's a big question. My view is that, and I, you know, I, I will go back to brands because that's what I've seen work and, I, and I've seen commodities fail. So I do have a, a sense that having seen what brands can do in, in fast-moving consumer goods over a long period of time in and out of different cycles, I think with the right combination of patents and trademarks, you can certainly get through the tough times. I think in terms of, you know, 
the investments community community's view of these types of assets, they're very much a long-term investment. And that's no surprise to any of your listeners. But, you know, you really are talking, even with the, the best operators and the latest technologies, it, it's 10-year cycles to get into full production and, and really get those businesses humming. And that t- tends to separate those type of investors. Uh, and, and we find that certainly in our space, yeah, you know, we're seeing the the sovereign funds, the pension funds, having a look at and investing in in some of our industries. But it's really, yeah, they've got twenty to thirty year horizons. Uh, so again, no surprises or shocks in that, I don't think, Adrian. But certainly, apples as a category has got a lot of innovation in it, and uh, and our view is very much it's 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 got a long term future. Well, I think we've run out of time, Phil. But thanks for today. But you know, thanks for your ongoing support. I think. Um, the lens you have is very differentiated to many um, that we talk to in agriculture and very valuable part when we have some pretty optimistic entrepreneurs and farmers that want us to lend the money to develop, having your history and guidance on the ups and downs of markets and where this penetration is is truly valuable. So thanks for your ongoing support. Thanks for today. Pleasure, Adrian. It's, uh, it's been great to be part of the, the Merricks Capital uh, Ag team. And uh, I look forward to us uh, continuing the work that we do with you and to help uh, you make the right decisions and, uh, and, and help expand Ag in Oz and beyond. Thanks, Phil. Cheers. Merricks Capital is an Australian fund manager delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrick's Capital, head to www.merrickscapital.com.